If you will join me in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we continue in our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. The title of this morning's sermon is Fearing God. Fearing God, and our key words for our worshipers in training are words, dreams, and vows. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we will begin in just a moment as we look at the text. It seems like one of the um, conversations that I have more than any other conversation as a pastor is this in some form. I believe in Christ, I love Christ, but He seems far right now. I love God. I want to be near to God, but He seems far. He seems distant. Seems to be in my head, but my heart is not engaged. I'm not experiencing a great amount of joy in Christ. I'm just simply going through the motions. And I probably hear that more than anything else as a pastor. It's the most common conversation and a conversation that I even have with myself from time to time. There are times for all of us when we know that we believe. We know we are justified by our faith in Christ Jesus, but we feel distant from God. And if you say that doesn't happen to you ever, I think you're lying. So what do we do when we wake up and in the moment that we wake up and everything we profess seems to be far from us? What do we do in that moment when everything seems so distant and disconnected and joyless and we're simply going through the motions? What do we do when we know the right answers but they're not seeming to be enough to get us through? I think there's times when we've been given the right answer and it's just not helpful. I know there's times when I've given some of you the right answer and it's been helpful to you, but my heart isn't even engaging at that level. Being real honest here about my own heart from time to time. Not lying when I say, as I preach, I'm preaching not just to you, but also to myself. Sometimes I sit down with some of you in counseling and I'm talking directly to myself. So the counsel I give, the sermons I preach, doesn't, doesn't flow from unhindered, perfect, always intimate union and communion with God on my part. I'm just as broken and messed up as all of you. So it, It might be different in some ways, but this I know that we have in common in all of our brokenness. There are times when we feel as distant and disconnected from God as David did in the Psalms when he wrote things like, How long, O Lord, will you forsake me? Why are you silent? Where are you, God? I love David's honesty. And if you tell me you're a Christian and you haven't had this experience, 
You've not had these very same thoughts and cries in your life. I think you're lying or very confused. I know some of us have been lied to. If you're a Christian, everything will get better. You'll always be happy. Nothing will make you mad. You will instinctively instinctively love everybody. Your friendships will all work out. All of your food will taste like cotton candy. And you're going to sail through life on a fluffy cloud of joy. No more struggle. No more discontentment. No more heart-wrenching. No more tears. You were lied to. You were lied to. And maybe you weren't prepared for the reality of following Christ. As Christ calls us to himself and grants us new life, we quickly realize, wait a second, all my sinful desires, they, they, they didn't all go away. They didn't all disappear. So we work through some of that and we experience some victory over our sin. And then six months later, six years later, we're, we're struggling again. We're hurting again. We're dealing with specific sins again. We're feeling distant from God again. So what do we do in those moments? What do we do when we have the right answers, but nothing penetrates the heart? Reading, praying, listening to sermons, fellowshipping, feeling distant from God. We talk to people about it. And you're going to tell us answers we already know because we've told it to others before. So we can probably finish their sentences. What do we do? It's inevitable as Christians we will find ourselves in what the psalmist calls a dry and weary land where there is no water. We're parched. We're beat down. We're longing to be quenched. We're feeling alone and distant from everything and everyone, and especially God himself. What do we do? I think Solomon is going to help us with that this morning. And it sounds funny, leading up to all of this in Ecclesiastes, that I'm going to say Solomon's actually going to help us this morning. But we're going to see how to approach God. How to navigate the desert. And how to avoid religiosity. The going through the motions outwardly when inwardly we're just stagnant and dry. Let's begin in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Our tendency when we are not experiencing vibrant whole, joy-filled union and communion with God is to revert to outward religious duty. And it reeks of superficiality and hypocrisy. And so Solomon gives us some direction here. Literally, he's saying, pay attention to your steps. Watch where you're walking. Look at your feet. Where are they going as you're going to the house of God. So he's referring obviously to temple worship and he's referencing the Jews who went to the temple to worship God. And he's saying, as you go in that direction, as you are headed to worship, watch your feet. Pay attention to where you are stepping. So right up front, Solomon tells us that how we approach God is very important. It amazes me when Christians say, It doesn't matter how we approach God, just that we do. 
But the problem with that is verses like this. Watch your steps. And direction that the Bible gives us. Saying things like pray like this. Sing like this. Preach like this. God has given us clear guidance on how to approach Him. So why add to that or take away from that when our obedience to these things is a means of God's blessing in our lives? So He gives us this direction to watch our steps and He leads to the next statement by saying, tread lightly. Yes, walk one foot in front of the other, but pay attention. Don't be reckless. What does reckless stepping look like? Second part of verse 1. Offering the sacrifice of fools. What does he call that? It's ignorant evil. Fools offer sacrifices and in their ignorance, they have no idea that what they are doing is evil because they have blindly walked into the temple. And we see that today a lot in Christian pop culture. Maybe it's a song that we scream at the top of our lungs while we're driving around in the car. Man, this is just awesome. I love this worship I have with God here. I just love this song. Well, that song happens to be theologically incorrect in about 15 different ways. So when you're lying about God and opposing His Word, it's not worship. It's evil. Well, I didn't know. Yeah, I know. You're ignorant, and that's evil. He includes, this might include the, the selfish prayers of unbelievers. They pray in ignorance. They know of God's existence and of His sovereign work, but their hearts are far from God, and they turn to Him when they want something or feel a need for Him, but they continue to walk in the lawlessness of their sinful lives. It is evil. We give a thousand examples of what this might look like. And listen, every single one of us has done this. And if you think you haven't, I bet I could ask you a few questions that would lead you to realize that you've been there. You've done it. And it's evil. So Solomon tells us, watch your steps. Don't offer the sacrifice of fools lest you be involved in evil in your ignorance. So what should we do? What does he tell us to do? To draw near to listen. Draw near to listen. In other words, we need God's Word. This is not a mystical sit in silence and wait until you hear a voice or convince yourself that your thoughts are actually God talking to you. He's not. God has spoken. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So God the Father has spoken to us by way of God the Son, Jesus Christ, and He graciously has given to us His Word that we call the Bible. And so God has spoken to us. And Solomon says, listen, draw near and listen. Many times we get into the 
spiritual wasteland when our souls feel dried up and tasteless. And so we go through the motions until we just hope something magically happens that will change it all. For example, it it, it looks like going from one emotional experience to the next. And dare I say, this is the objective of a lot of the American church. Go to a conference with some inspiring teachers and get fired up. And that's great until the excitement wanes in a few weeks. But it's okay because we have a concert coming in a few weeks. It's my favorite band and I love their music. And I always feel closer to God when I hear their songs. So concert, spiritual high, but in time it it wanes again. But that's okay because we have a, we have a retreat coming up and I always end up crying at retreats so I know it's really going to get me going. Okay, listen, these things, none of them are bad. They're not bad things. I like these things. They are helpful and refreshing and sometimes uh, are very encouraging to us. But these cannot, these must not be the source and substance of our spiritual health and vitality. Our union and communion with God cannot be based upon emotional experience that is derived from a good conference or when I hear the chords to my favorite song or when I stay in a cabin for a few weeks with other believers. So how do we approach God? Not through emotional experience, not through mystical experience. Solomon tells us very simply to draw near and listen. To look to God to hear and meditate on His Word and to strive to apply it to our situation. This is one of those things that I was talking about earlier. We know the right answer, and we might even be doing it, but we're not really being helped by it. But we've got to be in the Word. Reading it alone reading it with our families, studying it, reading books that help us with it, listening to sermons, memorizing the Word, meditating on it. It's a must. And if you're not doing this, you are completely neglecting the number one primary means that God has given us to know and to be unified to and commune with Him. But here's the reality in the dryness. I'm not saying it will never happen, but... It never has happened, so I doubt it will. When I talk to someone who is explaining to me their disengaged heart and their struggle to find satisfaction in Christ and to have affections for Him stirred, 100% of the time I ask this question. Can you tell me about your time in the Word? Reading, studying, listening, how is it? How's your time in the Word? And the answer 100% of the time is, it's not good or it's non-existent. So typically, when we're in a bad place, we're doing very little. We just hope it happens. Like we're, we're going through the motions to make it look okay on the outside and hope somehow it's just going to happen to us. I'll go to church. I'll do my service in whatever ministry I'm a part of, but I'm not cultivating my heart in any way, shape, or form the rest of the week. But magically, my soul will open up. 
The heavens will open and all my lust and rage and anger will disappear forever. So we neglect God's means of stirring our souls, our affections for Christ. The very thing that He has given us to hear from Him. We trade that for a magical experience. The next sermon or conference or CD. And so we just shut it all down. So it's really important that we consider what Solomon is saying here about watching our steps and ask, hey, am I even walking at all? If I am, what direction am I watching my steps? So here's the thing. We have to wrestle through and reckon with what, whether or not we believe the Scriptures are true or if God was just kidding. So to believe the Bible is to believe God is who He says He is. And that means that we don't get to barter with Him. We don't get to play games with God. We don't get to set the conditions upon which we approach Him. So in the midst of all of our attempts at spiritual bartering, Solomon says, hey, how about this? Instead of running your mouth so much, just be quiet and listen to God's word. So what's our way out of the wasteland? It's using God's word. Literally using the word of God in our lives. God, you've promised you would never leave me or forsake me. I'm feeling deserted. Can you help me here? And you know what? As believers, we realize eventually in these dry times, these gut-wrenching times of bareness in our souls, it's not a popular idea, but they're ordained by God. He is pushing you to His Word. He is pushing you to listen more and to stir less. And when you're... When you start seeing conformity to God's word come into your life, you stop making false sacrifices that are evil before God and you start walking with steps that are pointed in the right direction. You're on the long, slow walk in the same direction. I'm not talking about works here that bring about salvation. I'm talking about using what God has given us to commune with Him. Working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, utilizing the means that God has given us, that He has provided to drive us to Him by His grace. It's very easy as we contemplate the sovereignty of God and God's sovereignty in our salvation. I believe those things with all of my heart, but it's easy to hold on to that and to throw out our responsibility. God has sovereignly given us all of the means to draw near to Him. We must utilize them. We must. And His Word is first and foremost. Look at verse 2. Be not rash with your mouths, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many Words. So the idea here is that we enter into the worship of God. We do so with open ears and not so much with open mouths. But it's hard to listen, right? It is hard to listen. Like 
How often are you listening to a sermon and you realize, I, I really don't know what he said over the last five minutes? How many of you are thinking that right now because I just called you out? <laughs> because we're busy thinking about what... Man, i got a lot of stuff I need to do at work this week. We have so much chaos and so much noise in our lives, every one of us, that we can't just turn it off and listen to and soak in the Word. It's easy for our thoughts to wander. It's very difficult to engage our hearts and our minds consistently in the hearing of God's Word. Every time we open our mouths... Our hearts are on display. And all of the words we speak, the ones Solomon is most concerned with here, are those spoken in the worship of God. Yes, every word that we speak is, of course, before God. But the context here is pertaining to public worship. Think of it this way. Are you considering the words that we're singing? Or are you thinking... I don't really I don't really like this song. Oh, they just played a wrong note. Oh, I really like her dress. Hey, he just got a new haircut. Are you listening to prayers and praying likewise or are you working on your schedule for the week? Are you working as you're hearing the word to apply it to your life, interacting with what's being said or are you drifting and daydreaming? None of this is worship. It's easy to say words of a song, to pray prayerless prayers, and to sit for 45 minutes during a sermon. But simply repeating words and going through the motions does not mean our words and actions are flowing from a heart of worship. That's a hard reality, right? But so often... Here's the reality. When we're disengaged from God, when we feel distant from Christ, we will never say it, but we are frustrated and maybe we're even angry with God. So instead of being honest and admitting what God already knows, we tend to play a game. We say a lot of things. They may even sound really good and biblical. But if we're not being honest, we won't get to the root of the issue. And we'll constantly be trying to play a game to barter with God as if he doesn't know the sinfulness of our hearts. Solomon reminds us of his sovereignty here. He says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. He knows your heart. He knows what's real. And having a lot to say in the presence of the creator of the universe is foolish. We need to know our place. We need to know that He knows our hearts. He uses an illustration in verse 3. He says, A dream comes with much busyness. So as we work hard and do much in our earthly business, we are certain to have many strange and frequent dreams. Likewise, it's difficult to be wise at times. The more talking we do, the greater the chance that we will say something foolish, especially when we Worship. Work leads to many dreams. Foolishness leads to many words. But really the the issue here is not the amount of words that are used, but whether or not they be words that truly express our hearts. 
Am I being honest before the Lord? I think part of the reason that we disengage from the very things that God has ordained as a means to our union and communion with Him is that we want to try and hide from reality. But what happens when we're under the truth of God's word is that it begins to transform our hearts. It gets us to honesty and eventually it gets us to real prayers and real, honest, true prayers that are the fertile soil of spiritual growth. That's what I'm saying earlier when I said sometimes these desolate places that we find ourselves, they're ordained by God for our good. Jesus summarizes Solomon's words here well in Matthew 6, 7, and 8. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus gives us grace to help us speak words that are pleasing to God. The Lord of perfect speech can touch our unclean lips by His grace and teach us by the power of the Holy Spirit to use the words we speak for His glory. Proverbs 29.20 Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. James gives us the remedy. Let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Look at verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now, what happens a lot of times when you're in the Word, when you're reading it, when you're hearing a sermon or reading a book, you experience some level of conviction. You have this thought in your mind, that's it. That is it. That's really going to help. That's going to be great. So, for example, last week we talked about community. Yes, I need that. I'm lacking in community. That's important. I need to be engaged. You hear it. You're convicted by it. You're convinced of that truth. The Holy Spirit is at work inside of you, convicting you, showing this is the way to water. Drink. You're in the wasteland. You're parched. You're thirsty. You hear something or you read something and the Holy Spirit identifies it for you. This is the water. Drink. Maybe it's community, maybe it's a season of biblical counseling, maybe a small group, maybe serving in some specific ministry, whatever it is. Whatever it is for you, it's water. You're tracking everything in you is saying, yes, I need that, that's my move. And so we get that, we're tracking with that, and we're loving that. And do you know what the majority of us do at that point? Nothing. Nothing. So later, as we hear it again, it becomes like Charlie Brown's teacher, right? Wah, 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 wah. Yeah, I've got it. I'm going to do it. In fact, 
this is the week. I'm going to do it this week. And look, a lot of times there are good intentions here. Like how many times have you set out to read the Bible in the year and petered out after about a week? Lord, I'm going to do this. A week later, Lord, I'm going to do something else. (laughs) A month later, Lord, I'm not doing anything at all. Remember, perhaps before you knew any better, Lord, if you'll just give me what I want here, I will never sin in this way again. Really? Bartering. Ten minutes later, we've committed that very sin. Lord, I mean this time. This is when I won't do it again. Jesus told a parable related to this in Matthew 21. What do you think? A man has two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. He went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said, the first. The other son Solomon would call a fool. It is foolish to vow to God and then to not follow through. So often we make a vow to God. This is it. This is the week. This is the starting point. And then we do nothing. Why? A lot of reasons, but probably most notably is the reality that in order to make it happen, the place we have to begin is confession. Repentance, revealing our sin, seeking accountability, and then walking by faith, trusting the Lord, and praying that He would keep us faithful. How am I going to defeat sin? How am I going to get through the Bible this year? How am I going to lead my family in worship daily? By my own efforts? No. I need the Lord to sustain my efforts by His grace. But, notice, I said, efforts. Grace-driven efforts. Working out my own salvation is a responsibility of mine and it is fueled and driven by God, the Holy Spirit, at work in me. Keeping me and causing me to persevere minute by minute by minute. When it comes to making a vow before God, Charles Hodges gives this wise counsel. He says, a solemn engagement advisedly made with God is a transaction needing much prayer and consideration. It should rest on the clear warrant of God's word. It should concern a matter really important, suitable, and attainable. It should be so limited as to open a way for disentanglement under unforeseen contingencies or altered circumstances. These are wise principles. Our mouths can very easily and will very often lead us into sin. Look again at verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? And it is a great sin to fail to keep the promises that we have made before God. So in that moment, when the Spirit of God is at work, convicting you, challenging you, calling you to obedience and growth, that's your water. Make a vow and fulfill it. Go to the water. A lot of us were just going to refuse to go. 
And we stay in the desolate place. We cry out. We complain because we've decided, I'm not doing it. I am not going to the water. I'm not drinking. So Solomon says, instead of making that vow and then backing out, how about instead you just do it because it's what's best for you? Now notice in verse 6, he writes about the messenger. Some believe maybe he's talking about He's referencing an angel, but other scholars point to those during Solomon's time who worked in the temple who were responsible for following up with those who promised a financial offering but didn't pay it. So it would be like if this Sunday we said, please turn in a commitment to what you will be giving to the church this month, and you don't give that amount, so next month we're at your door. Hey, bro, you said you'd give $500 and we haven't seen it yet. So it's like the credit agency of the church. So he points to this and says, don't tell him it was a mistake that you made that vow. Don't make excuses and try to back out of your vow. Don't give me a hundred reasons why you couldn't do it and said you were going to do it. Think in terms of any vow that we make. Marriage. Vowing to stay married. How long? Until death? Not until I find someone else I foolishly think will make me more happy. Church covenant. Making a vow to live and serve and place ourselves under certain authority while holding others accountable to to the word and seeking to be corrected and disciplined when necessary. You name it. Whatever it is, he's telling us, don't look at it and say, vow? What vow? There must be a mistake. When we fail to do what we say, especially when we make a promise before God, the Bible says we are guilty of sin and that God will destroy what we have done. This is the truth of the saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Listen, many a men in hell have made many vows before God. Our good intentions do not get us to heaven. Look at verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. A dream is not reality. So one who dreams and babbles on and on and on does not dwell in reality. Pretending to worship while daydreaming and offering up meaningless words does nothing. Vain repetition and mindlessness while never offering the heart and mind of God in worship is vanity. And so, and here everything comes together and perhaps one of the most important things Solomon writes in all of Ecclesiastes, he tells us, fear God. Fear God. Recognize the might and the majesty of God. Realize and remember, He is in the heaven and we are on earth. He is God and we are not. So what does that mean? It means that sometimes when we are dry and weary and parched and lonely and hurting and God seems far away, He is not missing from the equation. Are we tracking with that? Sometimes... It's not because of our sin and our disobedience, but because God put us there for a reason. 
This is very important for all of us, especially for those who may be in the dry and desolate, lonely place right now spiritually. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ and yet you are in a dry place, it's not because God is angry with you. It's because He really loves you. So for some of us, we may feel like we're groping for God and He seems so far away from us. But He is right there. And He loves us enough to bring us through that. To kill some things in us, perhaps. To defeat some sin. To build into us some good discipline. To remind us even more of our need of Him. To remind us that we can't do it on our own. To remind us that He is God and we are not. Now we're not going to know what the reasons are. Think of Job. He was clueless, but he knew this. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you might be in the dry land for a while. But I promise you, Christian, God is there. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. It's dry. It hurts. But pay attention to your feet. Draw near. Listen to God. He has not abandoned you. Pray real, honest prayers. And don't play the blame game. It's where we have to begin. And when the water is shown to you, go to it. Don't run. Don't avoid it. Go to it. So here's the deal. You're either in the middle of this right now or you're on your way. That's the Christian life, is it not? This is either going on or it's coming. And it can be very frustrating. It can be very agonizing. And sometimes it makes us question our salvation and think at times it might be better if we just stop. Why don't we just walk away from it all? What's the point? But here's the deal. We don't need to look ahead and wonder if what we're seeing is a mirage or if it's real. God has promised us that it is real. Eternal life is ours if we are in Christ Jesus. So he calls us to watch our feet to make sure that we're walking in the right direction, even if we can't figure out why the ground below us is cracked and hard and dry. Believe God and pursue the wisdom of finding joy in fearing him. Proverbs 14.27 says, The fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. A right fear of God. A right standing before God. And the ability to walk faithfully with our feet pointed in the right direction is possible only in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who understands more than any of us the dry and weary land, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, he never turned his foot. He never denied the Father's love and faithfulness. He never played games or went through the motions. He walked perfectly through all that the Father ordained because we could not. God's standard? Be perfect. How do we know what perfect is? He has given us His law. 
Paul says it's used to prove our inability to be what he has commanded us to be. So all of us are lawbreakers, guilty, condemned, far short of perfect, but the standard still applies. And so he has given to us Christ Jesus, the perfect fulfillment of all that he has commanded and on our behalf has taken the penalty of our sin, has bore it, has defeated it, and has risen from the dead that we can live with Him forever. This is our hope. This is our delight. This is the way out of the dry and weary land to reflect on, to rejoice in, the truth of the gospel, the promises of God, the covenant faithfulness of God, that He is our God. We are His people. And that in the end, all of our weariness, all of our tears, all of our pain, all of our suffering will be no more. Our joy will be complete. It will be perfect. And we will be with Christ Jesus forever. That's the way out. That's the water. And we receive it through the word of God. Let us be sure to watch our feet as we approach the worship of God. That we pray with honest hearts. Open the Psalms. Pray with David. We walk to the water and that we drink. The water is the living water of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have ordained that in our lives as believers that there would be times that we look to and they seem dry. They seem to be a desert. But we thank you that you have ordained those times, that in those times you would be at work to draw us nearer to you, to correct us in our sin, to give us a greater desire for your word, to give us a greater want of Jesus, to stir our affections for him. Lord, I pray you do that work in each of us. I pray for those in here this morning who are right there. Who are walking in a season of loneliness, of discontentment, of weariness, of neglecting the means of grace. Help them, God. Help us all in these times to draw near to you, to put our focus on Christ who has accomplished everything for us, who has given us all things that are necessary, that we live lives of obedience, that we live lives of godliness, not because We're seeking to earn something, but because it has been earned on our behalf in Christ Jesus. Help us, O Lord, to put our hope in Christ, to drink of the living water.
to no longer be parched, to no longer be weary, but to have joy-filled lives in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we pray that as conviction comes into our lives, that we not make empty vows, but that by your grace, that you would drive our efforts to be more faithful to all that you've called us to. That you would be glorified through us. That we would experience greater union and communion with you. That we would taste the sweetness of your grace. And that we in our lives, we could be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Let that be the banner that flies over all of our lives. In the midst of our sorrow, we rejoice. In the midst of a dry and weary land, we rejoice because God is near. Because you, O Lord, have promised to never leave us, to never forsake us, and to work all things together for our good. Help us, Lord, to trust that. Help us to be honest with you. And help us to utilize the means that you have given us to lead us to the water that we may drink and be satisfied in Christ. Thank you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.